Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Go to our kids' worship time. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. Do you often stop and wonder in amazement at how God has created the world to have order? And there are repeated cycles in creation. We have a 24-hour day. The sun comes up. There's 24 hours. The sun, uh, the earth revolves around the sun. The sun goes down. There's a 24-hour cycle day. We have a lunar month. Every 30 days or so, we have a full moon. There's the cycle of the seasons. Now, we may think there's actually change of seasons, but it came a little early this year. But we've got winter, then you've got spring, you've got summer, and you've got fall. And then it starts all over again. These cycles, they repeat. And these cycles are for our benefit. We're able to sleep at night when it gets dark. God has created us with circadian rhythm that helps us regulate our breathing and regulate our sleeping. And and sometimes when you don't get sleep, your circadian rhythm gets off. Some of you that have had to change to working at nights have, have experienced that, or you go on a long trip where there's jet lag, and you experience that delay, you experience those problems. Studies have shown, I was visiting with somebody this past week, and they, they shared with me these, these studies that when time change comes in the spring, when you spring forward and you lose an hour, there's a 20 to 30% increase in heart attacks and strokes and other types of medical issues just because of losing that one hour of sleep. So we have these cycles that God has built in that help us a day, a month, a year. Now remember last winter, how long it lasted and how different it was from other years? It seemed like everyone kept telling Dustin and Haley, it's not normally like this. And we woke up this morning and we said, it's not normally like this. What's going on around here? Well, you may not know this, but here is something that did happen. Why is our weather pattern got off kilter? Why, why are things so weird? You may not know this, but here's the reason why. January 2022, in the South Pacific Ocean, there was an underwater volcano called the Honga Tonga. Okay, I'm not joking. It's called the Honga Tonga. This Honga Tonga volcano erupted, and it sent a tsunami not once but twice around the earth. And it spewed this plume of water into the atmosphere that would fill more than 50,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. So this, this plume of water, vapor, burst into the air in the South Pacific. And so NASA and meteorologists have told us that this Honga Tonga eruption is going to affect weather patterns around the world for the next three to five years. So that's why things are weird. Now, you may not want me to hear, didn't want to hear that this morning, 
that things are going to get strange and weird, they're saying that some of the temperatures could be raised up to two to three degrees both directions over the next couple years. So here's the thing. We like normal patterns of weather. We like things to be normal, the cycle to be normal. We don't like cycles to be broken. Now, what would happen if the 24-hour cycle got off kilter and there was sunlight at night and darkness during the day? That would mess with everybody. Or what would happen if there was a month-long solar eclipse where it was dark the whole time? Cycles are good when they're for our benefit. They provide health. They provide blessings. But cycles can be detrimental when they get off kilter and they go, you start getting into a bad cycle that affects your health, that affects your, your, um, your life. It has detrimental effects upon you. Albert Einstein has said this, supposedly. Now, most people give him credit for this famous quote, but there's a debate whether Albert Einstein said this. But he said this, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Now, why do I bring up repeated cycles and the definition of insanity? Because in Judges chapter 3, we are going to be introduced to the theme of the book and this repeated cycle that shows the insanity of the Israelites doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. So let us read together Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Then the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Reshatham eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Reshatham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Reshatham. So the land rested for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now we're going to explore three things this morning, three truths that emerge from this passage of Scripture. And in verses 1 through 6, we have the central theme of the book of Judges distilled for us in six verses. And here is the first thing we're going to look at this morning. The Lord disciplines His people because they have been paganized by the world around them. The Lord disciplines His people because they've been paganized 
by the world around them. Now, we need to remember two things from chapter 1 and from chapter 2. What did we see in chapter 1? The Israelites failed to drive out those pagan nations. They failed to drive them out. They didn't do it. They were incomplete in their, in their obedience. That was chapter 1. Chapter 2 that we looked at last week, that next generation, that new generation that came up after Joshua, they were rebellious. They were wicked. They did not follow the ways of the Lord. And so Israel has been unfaithful. They've been engaging in gross idolatry in the promised land. And so the Lord is going to test Israel by leaving those nations there. You see the word test show up in verse 1. And you see it show up in verse 4. Now, this test is not for the Lord to get information that he didn't somehow have beforehand. God is omniscient. God knows all things. Think of the word testing as God disciplining them. God is going to put them through the ringer, if you will. God's going to put them through the test of discipline as a way to punish them for their sin. And all good fathers do this. Hebrews chapter 12, 5 through 7, the writer says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The nation of Israel is in a covenant relationship with the Lord. And as their father, the Lord God is going to discipline this nation. He's going to put them through trials. He's going to leave them in the land with these nations because they've been thoroughly paganized. Basically, God says this. If you want to be like the nations around you, then go for it and see how that works for you. See what happens when you want to be like the nations around you. And so they did this. They were paganized in three specific ways. You will see this in verses 5 and 6. How were they paganized? Well, first, notice what it says there in verse 5. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They lived. Now, the original language says they settled down. They got comfortable. They cohabitated with these other nations. They got comfortable living with the nations that they did not drive out. Second, they intermarried with the pagan nations. They intermarried. Notice what it says there, verse 6. And their daughters they took for themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons. They intermarried with these pagan nations. Now what does God say about intermarriage with the Israelites and other nations? Deuteronomy 7, 3-4. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. They settled down, they got comfortable, and they intermarried. Now Paul has something to say about that in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 
Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be equally yoked. Do not make alliances. Separate. So Israel, number one, got comfortable in the land. Number two, they intermarried. And number three, they bowed down and they served these idols. At the end of verse six, what does it say? They served their gods. Joshua 24, 15. Remember what Joshua said? If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And Joshua says this, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They forgot that. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. They said, no, we're going to serve these pagan nations that are around us. So Andrew Fawcett is an old Scottish theologian, and he wrote this about this passage. He says, quote, It is not our being in the world that ruins us, but our allowing the world to be in us. Just as ships sink not by being in the water, but by the water getting into them. You don't sink by being in the world. You sink by the world getting into you. And that's what's happening here to Israel. Friendship with the world leads to adopting the ways of the world, which eventually leads to pledging allegiance to the world. I said you'd hear this verse again. We did it earlier during our time of confession, James 4.4. 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's a fine line between being in the world and of the world, or actually having the world in you. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will is of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be a friend of this world. James 1.27, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Listen to the different descriptions here. Don't be a friend of the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be stained by the world. And then John says it this way in 1 John 2.15-17, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here's the main theme of Judges. Israel's become thoroughly paganized. They become friends with the world, and therefore God is going to test them. God is going to discipline them. Now, how does that play itself out? Well, we're going to see the second thing this morning, how it plays itself out throughout the rest of the book. So the second thing we see this morning is the repeated cycle of sin 
surprisingly shows the salvation of our patient God. There is a repeated cycle. So I'm introducing to you today the cycle. We will see this every week. It's a repeated cycle. And so in verses 7 through 11, you see the cycle. Now, I'm going to give these to you all at once, but then we're going to go back through them this morning and look at each of them individually. So first, Israel does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. They do evil. Second, the Lord disciplines them. He brings another nation to come and, and oppress them, to sell them into slavery, to bring them into distress. Then the people are upset. They cry out for relief. Please get us out of this. The Lord does something amazing. He sends a spirit-empowered judge, a leader, to deliver them. And then the Lord grants them victory over their enemy. And then the land has rest for a certain amount of time, and then that judge dies, and then the cycle repeats itself all over again. This repeated cycle. So let's explore these seven steps of this cycle. Again, this sets the stage for the rest of the book of Judges because you will see this cycle every week. And it's purposeful. It's an unending, terrible, downward cycle, spiral. So here's the first aspect. There's seven of them, and you see them right here in the text. First, Israel does evil, which angers the Lord. Okay, look at verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. They do evil. And like we saw last week, they forgot God. Now, does that mean that they merely forgot information about God? No, if you go look at that Hebrew word, that word doesn't mean they forgot. That word in the original language means they had a patent disregard for God. They didn't want to know God. They rejected God. They could care less about God. And what did this lead them to do? To bow down before these false gods. Baal, the thunder god, the rain god, the god that would bring crops, and his wife, Asheroth, the fertility goddess. These two false gods. And if you remember last week, how did they worship these gods? They went to a temple prostitute and did lewd and sexually immoral things as a way to worship these false gods. They forgot about God. Now, none of us would forget God. None of us would say, I'm an atheist, I forget God. But let me ask you a question. Can you, by your actions and your attitudes, live in such a way that you could care less about God? Oh, I'm a Christian in name, but my attitudes and actions and choices reflect that I could care less about God. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. Most people don't wake up overnight and bowing down to an idol. It happens slowly over time when you begin to make compromises here and there. Just as the way the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we must pay cl much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. There's that slow drifting away from God. So the first thing is they did evil in the sight of God. They forgot God. They had no regard for God. They worshiped these idols in flagrant rebellion against God. So how does God respond? That's cool, Israel, do what you want. No, that's not how God responds. Number two, the second step in the spiral is the Lord disciplines Israel by selling them under the oppression and distress of a foreign enemy. God will discipline them. 
He will bring a foreign nation in to bring distress or sell them into slavery or to oppress them. So where do you see that? Well, you see that in verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them, that's Israel, into the hand of a king named Cushan Rishayatham, king of Mesopotamia. And how long? For eight years. He was the most powerful ruler in the world at that time, the king of Mesopotamia. Psalm 90, verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? It says right there, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He got angry with them. Now, Cushan, Cushan Reshaatham means the king of double wickedness. That's what his name means. The king of double wickedness. This is a doubly wicked king. So God disciplines them by putting them in the hands of the doubly wicked king for eight years because God's anger was kindled against them. Now, Dale Ralph Davis says this, quote, This anger shows that the covenant God who has bound himself to his people will not allow them to be cozy in their infidelity. Steadfast love pursues them in their iniquity and is not above inflicting misery in order to awaken them. Let's not take God's anger for granted here and just say, oh, that's Old Testament. For those professing Christians who are walking in idolatry, who are walking in rebellion, who are backsliding, God has every right to discipline you in his fatherly anger. If you compromise with the world, God may punish you by the world or with the world as your means of discipline. Proverbs 14.14 says this, The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. In other words, you reap what you sow. Listen to Andrew Fawcett again, the great Scottish pastor of, of yesteryear. He says, quote, How many in eternity will bless the loving correction of God in time? It is far better to suffer for a time if suffering rouses the sinner from his spiritual apathy, then to escape suffering now and suffer forever in hell. God disciplines you because he loves you. And he's doing it to wake you up out of your apathy. He could very easily keep you in that apathy, keep you in that rebellion, but he does it as an act of love. The psalmist says in Psalm 119.71, It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Be thankful when God disciplines you because God is doing it for your good. God is doing it because He loves you. God is doing it to wake you up. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have been proverbially hit by God's two-by-four to get your attention? He smacks you upside the head, and it hurts, but you look back and you're like, I needed that because I was going down a path and God loved me so much that he's, he's moving me to repentance with his fatherly discipline. So God is testing Israel. He's disciplining them by putting them through a trial. They're going to be dis disobedient. They're going to be flagrantly rebellious. The anger of the Lord's going to kindle against them. I'm selling you into the hand of double wickedness, this king, for eight years. Okay, there's the third part of the cycle. Okay, so 
They do, Israel, they do evil, God's anger, he sells them into slavery. Third, the people cry out in anguish for relief. The people cry out. Now, we need to understand what this crying out is. You see this in verse 9. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. This crying out is not repentance. There's no mention of repentance. Remember I said back in chapter 2, that's the last time they're going to repent. This is a cry because they're uncomfortable. This is a cry because they don't like it. This is a cry because they're oppressed and they just want relief. They're uncomfortable. They're sorry that they have to deal with the consequences, so they're crying out for help. Not repentance, not prayer. It's more like, God, get us out of this. Even though we could care less about you, please come and get us out of this. They cry for help. And how does God respond to them? This is where it gets amazing. God does something amazing. So here's the fourth part of the cycle. The Lord raises up a spirit-empowered judge to save Israel. And that's amazing. This is sheer grace because God is not obligated to save Israel or to bless them with the judge. It's not like they're being repentant and God's responding to the repentance. No, God says you are flagrantly disobedient and your crying out does not move me in some way to respond. I'm doing this out of sheer grace because you're in covenant relationship with me. So I'm going to raise up a judge. Not because you deserve salvation, but because I love you. And it's crucial to see that the Lord raises up these judges. These are not self-appointed leaders that wake up one day and say, hey, I want to be a judge. God raises these leaders up. And notice the wording. It says there in verse 9, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. You can also think of the word Savior. Maybe some of your translations have Savior. It's not beyond the, the Hebrew text there to, to look at it as it being a Savior. Now, who's the first judge that's going to be the Savior of Israel? Othniel. Othniel. Now, who's Othniel? He's Caleb's nephew. Caleb, we looked at a few weeks ago, the mighty man that stood with Joshua. And he is from the tribe of Judah. And Othniel, there's nothing negative said about Othniel. He stands as the paradigmatic judge. He's the paradigm. He's the true judge. He's the ideal judge. There's nothing negative about him. Go back to chapter 1 for a moment. And you find out first about him back in chapter 1. Back in verse 11. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksaw, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksaw, his daughter, for a wife. So he's a noble warrior. He's a man who has a wife. He is a deliverer that's been raised up. But most importantly, I want you to notice that he's spirit-empowered. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. Not only is he divinely appointed by God, but he's empowered, anointed by the Spirit. 
Now, we're going to talk a little bit about this because there's a question as to what does this mean in the Old Testament, the role of the Holy Spirit. But right here, the Spirit comes upon Othniel. So he's a Spirit-empowered, Spirit-anointed deliverer. Zechariah 4.6 says this, He said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. They do evil. God disciplines them. They cry out. They don't deserve it, but God raises up a spirit-anointed deliverer to save them. And here's number five. The Lord grants victory over the enemy. They have victory. You see that in verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. He judged Israel. Again, not a guy in a black suit, you know, behind the bench, but he delivered Israel. Now, you need to understand there's two aspects in which a judge delivers Israel. He delivers them militarily from the enemy, but he also spiritually delivers them from idolatry. Outward oppression, he delivers them from. Inward sin, he delivers them from. And so this judge, Othniel, is reorienting Israel back to the Lord. He's a spirit-empowered leader. He defeats the enemy, and he orients Israel back to the Lord. And there's victory. And so it's not because Othniel was such a great man. It's because God is such a great God and, and won the victory. And so as Jonah 2.9 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. God saves them. God delivers them. They don't deserve it, but God does it. Okay, what's number six in this, in, this, in, the, in this cycle? The land has a period of rest from war and oppression. Now, this period of time will vary from, as we'll see throughout the rest of the book, but here it's 40 years. So the land had rest 40 years. It's interesting. That's the exact same time that the nation wandered in the wilderness and died off before they, the next generation got to go into the promised land. So their grandparents wandered around for 40 years. So the nation had 40 years of rest, 40 years of peace, 40 years of no conflict. And then number seven, and you may think this is not that important, but it is. Seventh, the judge dies, thus removing his restraining influence on Israel's sin. Othniel is a prototypical judge. There's nothing negative said about him. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's a man that's warrior. He's got a wife. He's the nephew of Caleb. He's spirit-empowered. He delivers Israel into, or he delivers uh, the enemy into Israel's hands. But remember what I said last week of that illustration I used of a dam holding back the river? That river wants to come rushing down with sin and idolatry, and so God puts a, a judge there to be the dam to stop. And once that judge, when that judge is there, things are good. Israel's on their best behavior. He's a restraining influence. But once the judge dies, once the dam is removed, what happens? The sin starts flowing. Now, this... We see back in chapter 2, verse 19. Go back to chapter 2, verse 19. Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. 
So how will Israel respond to God's faithfulness of raising up a spirit-empowered leader to deliver them and give them 40 years of peace? How will they respond? Will they respond the way Romans 2.4 tells us to respond? Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Are they going to repent? Because God's been kind. We saved you. You were in prison for eight years under this powerful king. We raised up a spirit-empowered leader in Othniel. He delivered you out of their hands. There's 40 years of peace. Okay, how do you know the cycle starts over again? Read the next verse. (laughs) Verse 12, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the cycle repeats over and over again. Those same seven things just keep going on over and over again. And really what it shows us is the patience of God. He is long-suffering. Now, he's going to discipline them for being paganized, but he's also going to deliver them because he loves them by raising up a judge. Now, I said we're going to look at three things this morning. We're done, right? What's the third thing? I want us to see Jesus in this passage of Scripture. You may say, well, I don't see Jesus show up. Well, here's the third thing we see. Christ's love for us in the gospel. The name Othniel, it means God's timing or the time of God. At just the right time, under God's timing, God brought a Savior to deliver Israel. Jesus is the greater Othniel because at just the right time, God sent Jesus to be born to save us from our sins. Galatians 4, 4 4-5, But when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Othniel was spirit-empowered, but he was only a good and imperfect man. Jesus was also spirit-empowered, but he was the perfect man. Perfect in thought, word, and deed, he was fully God and fully man. Othniel defeated a king called double wickedness, the king of Mesopotamia, in a great victory. Jesus has defeated double wickedness, sin, and Satan when he died on the cross, winning for us the greatest victory over the double wickedness of sin and Satan. Colossians 2, 14-15, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Look at the last statement there in verse 11. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Jesus, the Son of God, lives. Jesus rose again. He's victorious over the grave. And He ever lives to make intercession for us today. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, He, that's Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Israel experienced 40 years of peace in the land. Jesus, our King, gives us longer than 40 years of peace. He gives us 
eternal peace by forgiving our sins. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not 40 years, but when we've been there, what, 10,000 years? Bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's grace than when we first begun. Jesus is the ultimate Savior. He conquered our sin. He conquered Satan through his death on the cross and his victorious resurrection, and he is alive and ruling today as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, don't become paganized by the world around you. Don't become enslaved to sin and Satan. Don't forget your God and engage in idolatry. This will only lead to chaos, crisis, oppression, slavery, and God's fatherly hand of discipline. If you claim to know Jesus and you're swimming in a downward spiral of chronic rebellion, God will discipline you. And it may be painful, but he's doing it because he loves you. So instead of doing all those things, as we sang earlier, rest in Jesus. Don't fight against Him. Rest in Him as your only Savior. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who, are leery, weary, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest in the finished work of Christ, your Savior, this morning. And set your heart and your mind above on Jesus, who is your life and who will come again. Listen to the words of Paul in Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Rest in Christ and turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow what strangely dim in light of his glory and grace we need his grace we need his glory and it comes by resting in his finished work and setting our eyes upon jesus not the things of this world so let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and let us go before our Savior, Jesus. What ma- amazes me about this passage of Scripture is that you, not that you disciplined Israel, not that your anger was kindled against Israel. That, that makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense is that you raised up a deliverer to save them when they didn't deserve it. And Father, I look at my own life and I realize how sinful I am and how I don't deserve 
a Savior and how you've raised up Jesus to be our deliverer, to save us from our sins, to save us from the double wickedness of sin and the devil, to conquer those enemies on the cross and through the empty tomb. And then you send the Holy Spirit to come live inside of us so that we can be empowered. Lord, when you've done all these great things for us, why in the world would we want to be like the world around us? Why would we want to be friends with the world? So Lord, help us to set our eyes, our minds, our hearts on things that are above, on you, Jesus. So we await for your return. We want to be a people that are so focused on you, Lord, that the things of this earth do grow strangely dim in the sense that we are not friends with the world. We're not stained by the world. We're not lovers of the world system. But our hearts and our minds and our lives are fully devoted to you. So, Lord, we need your grace. We need your strength to walk in this manner that's worthy of our calling. So as we leave this place, may we rest in the finished work of Christ. May we have our eyes on Jesus. May we look to Christ alone as our victor, the one who's conquered our enemies. And Holy Spirit, would you help us to walk in humility? Would you help us walk in holiness? Would you help us not be paganized by the world around us, but to be thoroughly, thoroughly saturated with the Word of God and the love of Christ for the glory of God. So we need your help to be able to do this. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Father, you're in no way obligated to give it to us, but you do so because you love us. And for that, all we can say is thank you and fall on our knees in humility. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.